Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, host Ann Donahoe and guest host Nick Opich are talking with Ryan Crandall. Senior Vice President and Head of Products at Merrimed, a leading multi-state cannabis and hemp operator focusing on health and wellness. Merrimed develops, owns, and manages seed-to-sale state-licensed cannabis facilities, which are models of excellence in horticultural principles, cannabis cultivation, cannabis-infused products, and dispensary operations. Merrimed recently reported improved cash flow from operations due to robust adult use sales in Illinois and Massachusetts, as well as increased revenue from sales in their managed medical businesses in Delaware and Maryland. The company's manufacturing facility in New Bedford, Massachusetts is almost complete and two adult-use Illinois dispensaries continue to flourish with a third dispensary in Mount Vernon finalizing requirements to begin operations. All in all, this is a great time to be speaking with Ryan Crandall of Merrimed about their products, consumer trends, and his forecast for the cannabis industry. So don't sit back, lean forward. Now onto our conversation with Ryan, Ann, and Nick. Ryan Crandall, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you on talking about Merrimed and, you know, the industry in general. Um, first off, where are you joining us and how are things over there? Uh, thank you, Ann. I, um, it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, so I'm in Norwood, Massachusetts. Uh, so we're headquartered uh, just outside of Boston. And, um, and we've been here at our headquarters for about four years now. Okay, well, I'm a Yankee fan, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so, uh, good. I mean, I think, um, I definitely want to get into talking about the Massachusetts market a little bit later because it is such an interesting market. Um, but if you can just tell us a little bit, um, about Merrimed, um, some of the brands that you guys, uh, own and, you know, the States that you operate in just to kind of give our audience just an overview. Sure, happy to. So Merrimed is a multi-state operator um, which owns and operates several uh, cannabis, notable cannabis brands. Um, you know, several product categories covered uh, with more, more soon to come. But the, the existing portfolio is comprised of uh, several leading brands that, that people have probably heard about. So uh, Betty's Eddie's is a brand uh, that I actually started back in 2014 um, and it is an all-natural fruit chew brand. Um, so it medicated chew, uh, fruit chew, full line of uh, all-natural chews uh, that compete with gummies, compete in that whole kind of candy confections arena of cannabis. And in every state that it's been available in, it, it's been leading. Um, in addition to Betty's, we've got Nature's Heritage, uh, which is a, a, our flower uh, pre-roll, concentrate, and RSO brand. Um, it's most widely known in Maryland and Massachusetts for really kind of the top end of flour in both of those markets. Um, so, you know, we can talk more a little in a little bit about, you know, some of the exciting things to come in the Nature's Heritage brand. Uh, but that brand has really built out a, a very good reputation for itself and the products within it in each of the states that it operates. Um, Outside of those two, uh, those two very well-defined brands, we've got some brands that we're bringing up 
um, along the way, right? So uh, K-Fusion, uh, formerly known, known as ComFusion, uh, is, is active in Maryland, in Massachusetts, in Delaware. And um, it's a brand that's focused on microdosing. Um, so, you know, scientifically formulating THC and the cannabinoids in a way that's easily digestible by the body and also allows for, uh, you know, smaller doses uh, taken more frequently or at the discretion of the person taking those. Um, we've got a brand called Born Baking uh, that is more fun. It's a, it's a fresh baked um, brand of cookies and kind of all the normal bakery items. Um, we're doing both high dose and low dose versions of those depending on medical or adult use markets. Um, and we're hearing that there's a real dramatic need for those, even though, you know, kind of those are the old school edibles for, for pe before dispensaries were open. There's always you know. a need for cookies. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, there's, there's really, you know, there aren't a lot of brands doing it at a national scale well yet. And I think that's a, you know, an opportunity that we, we've identified and, and we're going to, you know, continue to really build out Born Baking uh, into, a, into a very uh, well-known brand across multiple markets. Um, finally, you know, the last brand that I'll mention, it's not a product brand, but it's a retail brand. It's called Panacea Wellness. Um, so we've ro rolled out our first uh, Panacea Wellness store in Massachusetts uh, with several more slated uh, in the near term. Um, and that's a, a adult, adult use? Yeah, so it's it's uh, we just got our provisional for adult use in Massachusetts. So we're open medically right now in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. uh, with the uh, plan to open September one for adult use. Awesome! Oh, exciting. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and let's also just give our audience a little bit more of your background. Like you mentioned, you're the one of the co-founders of Betty's Eddies. Talk yep. about you know starting that up and even before who's that. Who's Betty? Yeah, who's Betty? <laughs> But then also, what's your, what was your personal journey like? How did you get into the, the cannabis industry? Sure. I, I, um, so Betty is, uh, we'll, we'll just leave that, that unanswered for now. Um, oh, ooh, right. secretive. So, no, look, I, I think, um, you know, I started in cannabis before I ever really started in cannabis. I, I mean, I, I've been passionate about cannabis since I was, you know, uh, later in high school and in college, right? And, you know, that's 20, 20 odd, some odd years ago. So, you know, I've been passionate about cannabis and, and the plant for a long time. My specific journey started back in about 2012. Uh, me and, and several, you know, friends uh, decided to get together and form a nonprofit in Massachusetts and go for one of the, uh, the medical licenses that, uh, that was available. Long story short, we were unsuccessful in that process. But during that process, created a business plan and part of that business plan was to create branded products. So after we got the horrible news that we didn't get uh, one of the licenses in Massachusetts, you know, I took a piece of that business plan and began to build what I believed was the future. I, I, I believed back then uh, that brands would ultimately rule the day. And it's just now that we're starting to really see that come true in cannabis. So I, I, you know, I'm happy that I, you know, that I thought forward and said that I, you know, Heinz ketchup, nobody cares where the tomatoes come from as long as they're high quality and, and to the standard of Heinz. So I, I always felt like in cannabis, the same thing would ring true ultimately. You know, the brands that are trusted, uh, that offer a consistent experience with a top quality product are going to ultimately win the day. So that's what we started with Betty's. We wanted to create a differentiated product 
you know, we started off with caramels. We were, you know, making them all, you know, by hand and, you know, wrapping them by hand and, you know, friends and family were giving us feedback. And, you know, ultimately we learned the extraction processes that were best and, you know, worked with food scientists and culinary people at local colleges to help get us better, you know, organically over time. And, and really, you know, the main thing that I learned was just focus, right? I mean, focus on what's really important. You can't do too much. So, you know, we started Betty's, you know, in 14, you know, we had a couple failed partnerships. Um, ultimately, I found a partnership that worked with Marimed, uh, where we brought Betty's to Illinois through a partnership that they had. And uh, ultimately, I sold the company to Marimed in 17, and then came on in the beginning of 18 to run product and sales here. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the story in a nutshell. You know, it's been really, really exciting since 2018, when I got here at Marimed. You know, we've made Betty's uh, for a while. It was the number one product in Illinois. It is the number one product in Maryland. It's soon to be in Massachusetts. You know, it's one of the top products in Rhode Island. So it's dominating markets. And, and um, there's a secret sauce, you know, I think in terms of really relating to a consumer and providing an excellent product. And so we're, you know, our goal and our mission here on the product side at Marimed is to create that same, uh, you know, special sauce in all of our brands and really pay attention to what our consumers want and refine the, refine the brands over time to give them exactly that. How are you finding it? Um, because that is one of the more optimistic viewpoints I've heard about brand. Um, and, and we talk to so many entrepreneurs and we talk to so many brands themselves, um, you know, that talk about how hard it really is to build a brand in such a fragmented marketplace. So that, you know, you're getting the Betty's Eddie, the Betty's Eddie's that you're used to in Maryland, you're getting it in Rhode Island, you're getting it in Illinois and Massachusetts. Can you talk about how, how different it is in building a brand like this versus building any other brand that can cross state lines and all of that stuff. Like what, what challenges are you seeing in building a brand like this? Oh man. I, so that's a great question. And, and I, you know, I, um, there, there were so many challenges and there's still so many challenges that we you know, we identify and we solve. Right. And, you know, one of the early challenges was not every state's the same, right? Mm -hmm. So there are different, you know, levels of manufacturing and production uh, that you need based on just basic state size. And then there's, okay, I've got a big state, but the regulation in the state only allows a very small handful of consumers to become medical patients, right? And so the regulate, in addition to the population of each state, you really got to take into account the program that's there. Once you identify all that, then you've got to come up with an, you know, um, a, a production process for each one of these products that really is in line with what the demand is. And so you can't have a $600,000 piece of equipment in every state. Um, uh. it, it just doesn't make sense, right? And, and so the product really has to, you know, support it from a revenue perspective, whatever you're going to be putting out there from a production standpoint. But, you know, I'm also looking forward when, when hopefully when walls do fall down, when legalization does truly happen, you know, I, that's another reason why I don't want to have a $600,000 piece of equipment in every state. Now I'm going to consolidate all to a single or a couple of facilities and have a ton of redundant equipment that's way over my capacity. So, you know, part of um, the, you know, uh, part of what we've learned is that having different production methodologies that result in the same quality product um, so really having, you know, small, medium and large, if you can really do that, but having different alternatives from a production standpoint in terms of footprint and output for each one of these states based on what the requirements are. And, you know, that also lends you to, Hey, a market starts out small 
and ultimately regulations change, that small market becomes a larger opportunity market, and now I can scale my product seamlessly to the end customer to be able to achieve that. So, you know, that's what we've grown up in. So that's, that's kind of the mantra that we start to live by as we create new products, right? We're really trying to figure out what's the small, what's the medium, what's the large, and what's the real opportunity for each one of these brands in the markets that we're looking at. I love that you're bringing up, you know, the, the different states and kind of the, the challenges that come with replicating your products. Um, and, and, and you made a note there about, you know, the differences between medical and adult use markets. You guys are across, you, you mentioned Maryland, you guys on your website mentioned that you're in Kentucky, but you're also in Illinois and Massachusetts. So going forward, are you guys, you know, most excited about just getting into and expanding within the adult use markets? Or are you also targeting um, some of those medical ones that you think may be able to change? Like, where is the focus going forward? Yeah, great question. I, I think, um, so I'll take, I'll take it from two angles, from a business side and then kind of more from a personal side. So from the business side of things, I, I think there's, there's tremendous opportunity in a lot of markets and it's all about identifying, you know, where, where is the best opportunity for us in terms of, you know, owning a license, you know, partnering with a license, partnering with a different company. So, you know, depending on what the real opportunities are really depend on, you know, what the growth prospects are from, from just on my personal perspective, like I'm equally, you know, when I'm thinking about product, I'm almost equally as interested about adult use as I am medical. Um, I think my, my personal belief is that adult use is kind of in this huge, huge growth phase right now. Right. Um, and I think medical is ultimately going to make a resurgence. I, I'd love to see adult use grow to a very healthy level all across the country, and that's great. But I'd really like to see medical grow in parallel and really couple that with research, right? So mm -hmm. I, that's and that's the reason why I'm excited about the medical side, because I think all the research on cannabis is still ahead of us, right? There's been very little done to date. So I'm, I'm as a student of cannabis and, you know, this industry, very excited about the prospects on that side of the business and all those announcements to come and all that research to be done. But I think from a business standpoint, I mean, medical will always contribute and, and maybe at some point more, right? But um, in the short term, the real investor business opportunity, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity on the adult use side that's exciting as well. So, on that point then, and Anne's going to kill me because I let off this question with so, um, <laughs> but so on the adult East side, you guys aren't yet on the, in those West, I know you're in Nevada, but you're not in those West coast states like California, Oregon, or Washington yet. Are, are those uh, in line to be markets that you guys could enter in, you know, maybe Q3, Q4, looking at 2021, anything like that? Yes, I think they're, they're future states for us. Uh, we've, we've looked at them in the past and had uh, several opportunities that were close, uh, but nothing that actually came to fruition. So, you know, I, I think um, we're treating that West Coast opportunistically. Um, and well, there's a the lot of brands out there right now that you don't want to get lost in that shuffle too, right? Well, look, I, I, I like, comp you know, truthfully, I, I do like competition. I think it shows you where you are quickly. Um, so, you know, I, I invite the competition truthfully. But I, I think uh, by the same token, you know, California, just because of the, the amount of change of regulation and, you know, that having that shake out over the last couple of years has kind of been beneficial not to be there. Um, so, I, I, look, I think all markets on the West Coast are, are you know, near term opportunities for us as a company. And we're we're evaluating those daily. You guys made, um, uh, kind of to sticking to the product side, uh, a bit of a splash last year for your 
PK hot sauce. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit about that and maybe um, talk about the the culinary, maybe culinary trends? Um, because as we talk about expanding the adult use market and the and you know the inherent creativity and expansion of products, um, you know, where do you see things like that um, fitting into a consumer profile? Sure. So I'm tremendously excited about our partnership with a company called Tropazen uh, in Puerto Rico. So um, the lady's name is Marnie Maestrel. Uh, she's one of the owners of that of that business there. And, um, you know, she's she's she obviously not obviously she uh, she developed and, and curated all, all everything that they sell and everything that they develop. Um, she's, she's really fantastic. So, you know, she came here, met with us. We went there met with them. Uh, we, she really kind of fell in love with our Betty's product line. Uh, you know, I truthfully fell in love with a bunch of their products. And, you know, I think there's a huge opportunity in terms of bringing, you know, Latin American branded products to the mainland. Um, you know, there's a, there's a huge Hispanic and Latino community in the United States. Um, you know, and, you know, I, I would argue that every, every nationality, race and creed uses cannabis. So I don't necessarily think that there's a lot of consumer products focus on those folks. And I do think the PK hot sauce represents the first of many of those things to come. Um, so, you know, just high level, I'm very excited about the relationship and, and the ability to bring some of those products here. And that's the PK sauce is the first of, of several. Um, hot sauce, you know, I, I think uh, Marnie and I both share, you know, a passion for hot food and hot sauce. So same, hot, <laughs> right? <Try> and here. <laughs> I, you know, the, literally, I had you know multiple dispensaries in the state put in huge pre-orders as soon as they heard that it was available. So it's become, uh, you know, a pretty hot product in the state uh, over the course of the summer. And, um, you know, I know that I have one in my fridge at all times. And in any case, it's very good. And, and it's unique, right? So it's not just saying, hey, this is a hot sauce. And it's got a Puerto Rico brand name on it. Like, there are these peppers in it called caballero peppers, which uh, for anybody who knows Spanish, it's cowboy, mm -hmm. right? So they're called cowboy peppers. They're only natively grown on the island of Puerto Rico. Um, so they can only natively be found in Puerto Rico. And those are the peppers. They're, they're um, similar to a habanero, spicy pepper, but very flavorful. And they actually use that as the base for the hot sauce. Um, so they make, a, you know, they've got a, a really excellent chef on staff out there that works with Marnie. Uh, he developed the hot sauce with her. They actually have multiple formulas that we'll be, we'll be adding more formulas later. But they develop the formula there. They make it fresh. And then they, uh, they literally ship it to us, um, uninfused, of course. And then we go through an infusion process locally uh, in, our, in our facility, uh, bottle it, and, and sell it as fresh hot sauce. You guys should totally be on the show. What is it called, Nick? Hot Ones? The Is it a, the YouTube show where they interview celebrities as they like slowly eat hotter and hotter and hotter <laughs> sauces? And full disclosure, we're your PR firm too, but that you got that idea. <laughs> that would be amazing. And then just watch them. Yeah, just that would be amazing. Um <laughs> So, you know, on the, the edible side, are you, are there any other big consumer trends that, that you have your eye on right now? I mean, we talked about, um, you know, bakery stuff. We talked about some of the higher end culinary stuff. Um, you know, I'm, 
I'm seeing, I'm in California and I'm seeing a lot more microdosing, um, you know, in, in basically every form you can imagine. Um, what are, I guess, what can we see for the next six months, 12 months, um, you know, going forward? Thank you. Uh, so I think there's three, uh, you know, in my mind, I'm kind of focused on three really interesting new trends I'm seeing. Um, so the number one is, is solventless extraction. Um, so you're seeing a lot of demand around products like rosin and live rosin, and they're demand, demanding a very high price point. So I think solventless is big in terms of just the story there. And we can talk more about it if you have questions. Um, low and high dose options for edibles. So exactly what you just said, Ann, you know, the microdose, we're seeing a huge trend around microdose and the different blends and dosages of cannabinoids there as well as this interesting trend around high dose. Um, and we're seeing that in multiple states where, you know, consumers that are, you know, uh, more comfortable with cannabis and more active users are looking for even, you know, really kind of high dose stuff. Um, so both the low dose and high dose options. And then finally, you know, the, the big one that I'm, uh, you know, I'm excited about too is, is beverage, right? And this mm. whole concept of social consumption. Uh -huh. Um, so, you know, I think solventless extraction, low and high dose options, and then beverage slash social consumption are kind of the three that are really kind of top of mind as we're thinking about development for down the, a little down the road. Here. We've paid a lot of attention to the beverage category um, on the podcast just because it's it's so interesting to I mean, it's all interesting to us. Obviously, we're a cannabis podcast. But, um, you know, from from the beverage side, understanding how it fits into someone's consumption style, like if you're going to go and you, you know, you're going to take a gummy to go to sleep or take a gummy to watch a movie or like. So how does the beverage work um, instead of the gummy on top of the gummy instead of a beer with a beer like, you know, I'm having a hard time kind of trying to figure out where it is. And I've tried a couple of them. Um, and you know, it is really interesting. What are you guys seeing next for beverage in, in your brand portfolio? Yeah. So we do a, we do a powdered drink. We do a drink mix today. And so we're planning on continuing to expand that line of, you know, powderized drink mixes. Um, we, we see a, a large opportunity there. I think in terms of beverage, I'm still, you know, I'm still truthfully doing my homework. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's some cool brands that are starting to come out. Uh, there's one on the West coast called can C A N N. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. seen those guys, but really, you know, and Luke Anderson, I've met with a guy, excellent, you know, really, really good mind around beverage. I think, I think he's on the right track. I mean, um, I think there's other companies like can, uh, that are becoming thought leaders. It's really about, you know, one to two milligrams per drink and enabling people to have as many as they'd like without consuming too much and being comfortable um, and being able to, you know, if somebody chooses to be at a party and not drink alcohol, they want to have one of these, uh, allow it to be seamless for people. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that's, that's what I think, you know, the, the days of, the, you know, the 100 milligram drink that's, you know, four inches tall, and it's like one and two. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like the eyedropper it into your mouth. Yeah, right. I mean, there's always a place for Bacardi 151 or the, you know, the, <laughs> that, that high proof stuff. And and I think there'll always be a place for it to the you know, to the point of low and high dose edibles. But I think the trend in social is going to be much like the trend in why beer, you know, why, why light beer is, is so popular. It's because people want to, you know, enjoy multiple beverages. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Enjoy. An interesting comparison. Yeah. I hadn't heard that one before. Hmm. So I think that, you know, and, and when I talk to people, you know, when I have people over the house, I I'd love to have, a fridge that had, you know, some beer in it, some wine, and then some cannabis beverages, 
that, you know, people can choose what they want to have to socialize when, at a gathering. I, I think that's where we're headed. And that's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm excited about. I'm with you on yeah, that, right? I want, yeah, I'm with you on that. I want my fridge full of all the different options. I love hosting people. And so just being able to give everybody, you know, a choice, if you want cannabis, if you want like, you know, a hard seltzer, or you want just a regular beer. I, I love being able to have all of those. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and, you know, obviously COVID-19 is still affecting a lot of the industry. Can you talk about, um, how that's you, with you guys touching all parts of the, the cannabis supply chain, can you talk about just how the pandemic has affected you guys and, uh, the, the lockdown and everything? Have you seen more sales, different challenges come up? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it was crazy. I mean, I think it's crazy for everybody, no matter what line of work you were in, just trying to figure out how it was all going to work. And, you know, we were fortunate, really, really fortunate. So, you know, we had just gone through a deployment of Office 365 and really brought ourselves from, you know, an IT environment that was very desktop and laptop based to a cloud-based infrastructure. And, you know, that's not a small thing uh, for us. I mean, it enabled us. Microsoft Teams was something that we rolled out, you know, I'd say about a month and a half before uh, COVID. And so we were all very comfortable with doing remote work and, and organizing as a team from remote places. And, and so I, I feel like we had a good test run and we had all the tools in place to be as successful as we possibly could be uh, given the circumstances. So I think what has happened over COVID, I, I think we've gotten even better at, at working in distributed teams, right? We've gotten even better with doing video meetings. We've gotten even better with more organization, right? And, and just making sure uh, that people have everything they need to do their job and are supported, whether or not, you know, other people are physically there. So at a very high level, I think it made us more confident um, about being distributed, right? And, and made, made us more, more confident, I think. Um, you know, I think in terms of kind of the micro level of it, you know, mm -hmm. hiring in the facilities and things, it was definitely challenging for quite a while. I mean, we were trying to ramp several of our, uh, you know, several of our dispensaries, as well as, you know, our cultivation processing facility here in Mass. And, you know, we had to hire in the middle of a pandemic and, um, you know, doing a lot, you know, we always did in-person interviews for things and we moved a lot of those to Zoom and Teams meetings remotely. And, um, you know, but it all worked out. I mean, we did, we grew, you know, our hiring base, you know, our employee base at each one of our businesses during Corona. And I think we came out of Corona stronger than we went in. Um, but, you know, I think would we have been stronger had it not happened at all? I think we could make that case. Uh, it was challenging to get through. Um, but yeah, every business can make that case. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and some businesses can make it, you know, a, even a, a lot of strong of a case, right? I mean, cannabis companies weren't able to get any of the, uh, the monies from the federal government or anything like that. So, you know, they were, you know, literally left to fend for themselves, you know, in Massachusetts specifically. I mean, there were a lot of retail dispensaries that were literally open for weeks or months and have no cultivation or any other means to make revenue. And they were just shut down, you know, um, with no, you know, no recourse for their employees or anything. So, you know, I, I think we were fortunate. We didn't have an adult use dispensary open yet. They got closed. We were medical only. So specific to our instance, we were fortunate throughout COVID. I think it made us stronger, um, but certainly it wasn't without its challenges. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's amazing that 
uh, you know, on one hand, uh, you know, for the most part, cannabis is now considered an essential service. And on the other hand, they're not going to help you at, you know, in any way to, to shore up that service and even generate a little bit more revenue for the markets that you're in. So, um, I mean, definitely frustrating. Um, it, but it's almost like cannabis was kind of because of the, the high regulation and the inspections and all, like everything that goes into, um, safety measures. It's almost like this can't, this, the business of cannabis was made for this. I mean, it was always so careful. It was always, I mean, if you were operating legally, of course, um, you know, so, so we do have a lot of clients say, look, we already had like, you know, our rooms are all like self-contained. We've got the highest HVAC units and all of this other stuff. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Like you're already, you guys are, are ready for it. So, um, it's been kind of interesting to, to see that there was no question there. I just was no, so in the end, I mean, I'll dovetail on that because I think it's really, you know, it's it's spot on. I mean, our our new facility in New Bedford, Mass. That's a huge cultivation facility, state of the art, all you know, HVACs, DHUs, the whole nine. I mean, you can really feel the airflow when you're in there. It was funny in January, February. I remember walking around the building and we had all these hand sanitizer locations everywhere throughout the building. <laughs> and literally, I remember thinking to myself, "This is overkill." And literally six weeks later, it was like, we felt like we need uh, more. Yeah. I mean, we did, we ordered more, but I mean, it was unbelievable, you know, so it's, it's funny how things change so quickly. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and you guys are publicly traded, um, and being a publicly traded company is interesting on a normal day. Um, and I can use interesting in air quotes. Um, <laughs> but you know, COVID really does have its own separate bucket of challenges, um, when it comes to the public markets and regulations and all that fun stuff. What have you guys been hearing from your investors during this time and what are they concerned about? You know, I think, I think investors are concerned about, you know, the overall market state and, and kind of the fluctuations in the market. I mean, I think cannabis uh, as a sector within uh, the overall market, uh, you know, it's interesting what's happening lately. I mean, I, I think we're seeing a little bit of a run on cannabis stocks over the last couple of weeks. So you're seeing more capital uh, pumped into those markets. And I think that means to me that investors are starting to get excited by the fact that cannabis never had to shut down. So I think, you know, earnings are going to start to come out, you know, in August. And, you know, I believe that the earnings are going to be pretty good for most of the um, you know, larger publicly traded cannabis companies because, you know, they were, they were open for business throughout. And, um, and in some cases, in some states, I, I, I think anecdotally, I'm not sure I have any of the data in front of me, but I, I believe I've heard that, you know, a lot of revenues went up throughout coronavirus in, in multiple states. Um, and so, you know, with that being said, I, I think that cannabis companies, you know, from a public perspective, from an investor perspective are, you know, something that, uh, investors are, are looking towards to be a growth engine potentially. I want to jump back to branding. Um, one of the anecdotes, I can't remember who the, the executive that we've previously spoken with on this before, but he said that branding really doesn't matter at this point, that what consumers are looking for is the product that's going to get the job done for them at the right price point. What do you say when you hear something like that? Because that kind of seems to go counter to what's traditionally done, where brands, you know, they put out the marketing, they do the ads. Obviously, cannabis companies are limited to all that. So how do you guys just what, what, tell me more about what you think about a brand? No, look, I, I think, you know, there's there's um, ways to make, you know, revenue in, in a short form and, and then there's ways to grow it in a longer form. And I, 
Look, I, I, um, I think that uh, there's a lot of cannabis brands that don't necessarily provide good products or good branding or, uh, you know, some of those things to their consumers and they still sell. Right. And they still, uh, so I think I understand the argument. I, I just, I feel, and I, I know a lot of others feel as though branding uh, will be the value that carries the day. Right. And, and so uh, aligning pro, you know, quality products with quality branding, um, you know, will win the day. Uh, so I, you know, I think in, in the short term, yeah, I think you can slap a lot of labels on anything cannabis and because the demand, you know, in a lot of cases outweighs the supply, those things will sell. Um, the question is, will they continue to sell over time? Will they generate trust and, and pleasure from the consumers that buy them? And I think that's where, you know, this thing's going to pan out in the, in the true brands that care about their consumers, that care about the products, um, and that care about the value of their brand. Uh, th that's going to ultimately carry the day, in my opinion. Yeah, I love that point about, you know, building trust because it, it, I feel like that's more important right now than necessarily traditional brand loyalty, that trust where somebody knows that, hey, I can trace this product back to where it's coming from. Uh, I, I know it's going to give me this effect. So if you're in Nevada or you're in Maryland or Massachusetts, being able to get that across, that, that trust is so important. I agree. Consistency, trust. Very, very important things. And I think, you know, once you once you have consistency and trust, then it's like, all right, I've got 10 different brands I, I feel are consistent and I trust, which is the best, right? And then it's like, or, or you know, I feel like a, a this, what is the best brand with that I trust within that category? And, you know, I think we're, you know, we do see that. So yes, are there, are there brands out there that don't necessarily provide a great product that are mass distributed and, and they're, they're doing a good, good amount of revenue? Yes, but I actually look at those those guys as the opportunity, right? Because I say to myself, like, if we create a great brand and a great product, and we scale our production, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna um, we're gonna be a, a competitor for them. That'll be tough for them to challenge if they don't really care about their product or their brand. We had a question in here about uh, you know research and development um, with what with what you guys are doing, and I think I'm more because we're talking so much about brand. I'm. I'm more interested in in the creation of the look and the feel um, of of your product line and how you guys how you guys approach that because we talk we don't really talk about that uh, on the show here. So I'm just wondering, are you guys do you focus group? Do you you know how do you generate? Um, because your brands are are pretty, uh, they're they're all a, a little bit different. Um, you know, it's beautiful packaging. They all have their different personalities. But just wondering how you guys achieve achieve that look, feel, and all of that stuff that kind of encompasses brand. Sure, I, I think um, you know we do create user groups. Um, we we typically try and create user groups of the demographic um, that we're trying to focus on. Um, you know, and, and literally going back and forth with those user groups around things that they like, don't like, and et cetera. And I think the, the most interesting story around that is really the inception of Betty's, right? So early on, we decided that we wanted to create a cannabis brand that was, I don't want to say focused on women. It wasn't really focused on women. It was created by women, but had a filter that men never felt uncomfortable with buying. So you know, it was, it was really this idea that women, you know, typically make a lot of decisions on purchases. So when down the road, when cannabis does become a normal thing that people buy all the time, we believe that, that brands that are 
you know, kind of women led, women focused are going to do, are going to, are going to win the day. So, you know, when we, when we started Betty's, you know, the folks that I worked with from a design standpoint were in the demographic. So, you know, two, uh, you know, mid thirties moms uh, who own their own business, who I've known for a long time, we got them engaged. And that was like my wife and, you know, a lot of women that were middle-aged women were informing us how to build that brand. What did they like? What did they not like? You know, what did they want to see that wasn't out there? And we really allowed consumers, people that were advocates for the product to kind of have a say in building the brand with us. And, you know, I want to say we're doing the same thing with Nature's Heritage with a different group of folks. And the plan will be to do that same activity um, with the right people uh, across every demographic set of branded products that we want. Um, and I think that, you know, truly, without going too long on it, I, I think it really has yielded great results that we feel proud of. And we know that we're completely in line with our consumers when we're doing that. Ryan, you have been incredibly generous with your time. I have two more questions for you before we let you go. Um, sure. My first one is, what is the most exciting thing that Merimed has going on right now that you are looking forward to? Oh, geez. Um, I, you know, I think it's it's getting our retail dispensaries up and online in Massachusetts, retail, adult use dispensaries online in Massachusetts. So getting Middleborough open later this year. And then, and then we've got two more licenses uh, to announce and plan in Massachusetts. So, I, you know, we've got a couple uh, things close there. I'm incredibly excited about that. And then, you know, secondarily is, is um, you know, some of the new products that we have coming in the second half of this year. Um, which I can't talk too much about, but uh, there's some really, really cool products uh, that are going to drive some real um, customer adoption uh, in, some, in some new segments of cannabis for us uh, towards the end of this year and beginning of next. Oh, exciting. All right. We'll, we'll make sure to keep an eye out for that. Um, but the last question we got for you before we let you go, we, we ask this to every executive that comes on. Um, it's kind of our while you were sleeping question. So it's what do you think is the biggest untold story in cannabis right now? Like if you were to open up the, the Boston Globe or the New York Times, what's the cannabis story that you would you want to see being told? Oh, man. Um, Got you on the spot, story? man. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, I no, I truthfully want to see I want to see cannabis doing more um, for the community. Right. So I want I want to see I want to see cannabis really helping solve some of the social problems that we have in the country, right? And not just join, you know, not just affiliating with specific groups. Like I actually would love to see, you know, some of the cannabis organizations take some of their issues head on themselves and, and try and, and try and make a real impact. So, you know, I, I feel like with, you know, the fact that cannabis never shut down, um, the fact that, you know, we're on a tra trajectory now to, to legalize it, I think we can only welcome more people into this cannabis, you know, overall market and lifestyle if we do more to help the community around us. And I truthfully feel that way. So you know, I, that's what I wish we'd see more of. And, and I can impact it here in Marimed and I intend to. Uh, but I think as a community, as a cannabis community, we can do more of that. 100% agree. I, I feel like that's always like a story that that's being told where companies are like, yeah, we're dedicated to social equity and giving these opportunities, but you don't always see the follow through. So we'll be watching Ryan.
Ryan, thank you. Thank you so much again for, for coming on. This has been really great. Um, and we look forward to having you back. Why don't you come back in, in six months and, and tell us how it's going to Massachusetts. And all about those new products. Uh, thank you both very much. Special thanks to Ryan Crandall, the SVP of sales and head of products at Marimed. Check them out at M-A-R-I-M-E-D-I-N-C.com. That's marimedinc.com. As always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast or send Nick your hate mail at greenrush at kcsa.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush in your favorite, favorite podcatcher. One take, Shay. One take. Cannabis! Cannabis!